Lesson 13 for September 19 to 25 Must the Whole World Hear? Sabbath afternoon, September 19. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you weak, poor, humble, and sinners. But we thank you that you have lifted us up, that through your grace, through the provision of your Son, that each of us has eternal life and that we can share that with those around us. As we study this final lesson in this series on missionaries, we pray that we may find our part, our role in your service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory for ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's read that again. Romans 16, verses 25 through to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory for ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. As we've seen, the Lord uses people to bring the message of the gospel to others. However, Throughout the ages, millions have died without knowing the biblical plan of salvation. The fact is that a majority of those who have ever lived have not heard the story of redemption or known about the good news of God's grace as revealed in Jesus Christ. This leads to two persistent questions. First, on the Day of Judgment, how is God going to deal with these billions who have not known Him? Second, is there salvation outside of someone's knowing the plan of salvation as it is in Jesus? Some would answer that there is salvation in a single Christian denomination only. In contrast, others believe that all religions are equally valid guides to God and eternal life. In the end, the crucial point to remember is that Jesus has revealed to us the character of God, and this tells us a lot about his love for all humanity and his desire for as many as possible to be saved. God is a God of justice, and however he works it out, the shout will be heard across heaven. Revelation 15 verse 3 Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Sunday, September 20, No Other Name Under Heaven 
Some Christians have the conviction that only those who hear and respond positively to the Christian gospel can be saved. The people, sometimes called exclusivists, regard all non-Christian religions as constructs of fallen humans which express willful rebellion against God. Non-Christians are, they believe, for that reason, outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Some Christians take the further step of claiming that, outside their specific denomination and doctrinal structure, there is no salvation, even for other confessing Christians. For them, other denominations with their divergent beliefs have placed themselves outside the care of God and have no chance of entering the kingdom of heaven. For instance, in 1302, in his papal bull, Unum Sanctum, Pope Boniface VIII declared that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Some Protestants have taught something similar in regard to their own denominations as well. Question. Read Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. What is it saying, and how are we to understand these words? Acts 4 verse 12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The words of the scripture here are very clear. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ, and in no other name under heaven. It's important, however, not to read into these words more than they specifically say. Imagine a man in a building that is on fire. Before being able to escape, he is overcome by smoke and collapses unconscious. A firefighter finds him on the floor, grabs him and brings him outside, where the medics take over. He is rushed to the hospital, and a few hours later he regains consciousness. The point is that this person, who was saved, had no idea who had saved him. In the same way, anyone who is saved, either before Jesus came in the flesh or after, will be saved only through Jesus, whether or not that person had heard of his name or of the plan of salvation. Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 638, among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature, and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts, and they are recognized as the children of God." Monday, September 21, How Much Must One Know? Picking up where we left off on Sunday, we can see that although the work of Christ provides the only means of salvation, some believe that explicit knowledge of Christ is not necessary in order for one to be saved. This does not imply that salvation is available apart from Christ, but that God is able and willing to apply the merits of Christ's work to whomever he wishes. 
Some believe that those who do not know Christ and have never been exposed to the gospel, but who, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, feel a need for deliverance and act on it, will be saved. The quote from Ellen White at the end of yesterday's study certainly implies this. Think of Job and Melchizedek. Question. What light do the following texts shed on this idea? First of all, Psalm 87, verses 4 to 6. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre, with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. And John chapter 10 verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And Acts chapter 14 verse 17, Nevertheless he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And Acts chapter 17, verses 26 to 28. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said." for we are also his offspring. And Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel." God will repay each person according to what they have done, to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life, Romans 2, 6 and 7. Paul here declares that there are some outside of Christianity who will receive eternal life as a result of an obedience unto life principle, as in Leviticus 18, verse 5. For those Gentiles who show that the requirement of the law are written on their hearts because their conscience is also bearing witness, that's Romans 2.15, it will make a difference on Judgment Day because these people have responded to the work of the Spirit in their hearts. So to finish today, because we don't know people's hearts, why in all cases, either with professed Christians or non-Christians, must we be careful not to judge their soul's salvation?
Tuesday, September 22, Universalism and Pluralism. Some people teach that in the end God is going to save all human beings regardless of what they believed or even how they lived. Universalism is the conviction that all persons are so related to God that they will be saved even if they never heard or believed the gospel. After all, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. Thus, in this thinking, if he loves everyone, how can anyone be lost, especially if being lost means eternal torment in hell? How could God burn forever someone whom he loves? Hence, we can see how one false doctrine, eternal torment, leads to another, universalism. Related to universalism is pluralism, the conviction that all religions are equally valid and lead equally to God and salvation. No religion is inherently better than or superior to any other religion, at least according to this theology. A pastor in a church in California wrote on the church website that his congregation does not believe that Christianity is superior in any way to other religious beliefs. For pluralists, the vast range of religious rituals and beliefs, symbols and metaphors are mere surface differences concealing a similar core of all religions. Pluralists point out, for example, that most religions emphasize love for God and love for fellow human beings, a form of the golden rule, and hope for a blessed future life. According to them, all faiths at the core teach the same thing. Hence, they are all valid paths to God, and it is very chauvinistic and arrogant to try to push Christian beliefs upon those who are members of non-Christian faiths. Question. What does the Bible have to say about both universalism and pluralism? Well, we're going to look at quite a few verses here, and the first one is John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And John chapter 3 and verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. 
No question, both universalism and pluralism are contrary to Scripture. Not everyone will be saved, and all faiths do not lead to salvation. So to finish today, what answer would you give to someone who argues that Christianity's claim to be the only true path to salvation, as in John 14 verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, is arrogant and exclusivist. Share your answer with your class on Sabbath. Wednesday, September 23, Sinners in Need of Grace John 3.17 reads, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Question. What great hope is found in this verse for all humanity? How can we take this crucial truth and first make it our own? How then can we use it to motivate us to reach out to others? According to the Bible, we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God wishes for all to repent, as we read in Acts 17 verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And in Acts 26 verse 20, But declared first to those in Damascus and in J Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. And Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and be saved, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. From the fall in Eden onwards, God's purpose has been to save humanity from the devastation and ultimate eternal death that sin and rebellion have brought to humanity. What more proof do we need than the cross to show God's love for us and his desire to save us? However, Scripture is clear that God will not save those who openly rebel against him. Question. Read Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, Romans 1, 18, 2 Thessalonians 2, 12, Revelation 21, 8 and 22, 15. What powerful warning is found in these verses? First of all, Genesis 6, verses 11 to 13. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them, with the earth. And Romans one eighteen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And second Thessalonians two twelve, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. And Revelation twenty one verse eight. 
But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And Revelation 22 verse 15. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. God loves all people, but all people are sinners in need of grace. And this grace has been revealed in Jesus. He has called his church to spread the good news of this grace to the world. As Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 9, The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. From the beginning, it has been God's plan that through his church shall be reflected to the world his fullness and his sufficiency. The members of the church, those whom he has called out of darkness into his marvelous light, are to show forth his glory. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ, and through the church will eventually be made manifest, even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. Quoting there from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. And so to finish today, in what ways can you personally, not the pastor, not the elder, not the deacon, but you, Better learn to show forth his glory to a dying world. What must you change in your life in order to do this? Thursday, September 24, The Mission Call 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 and 23 read, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Question. What important principle is Paul espousing here, and... How can we reflect this same attitude in our own lives? The Lord of Missions, in his wisdom, chose to work through humans to bring the message of forgiveness and salvation to the world. God chose men and women, despite their weaknesses, to work together with the Holy Spirit and the angels. Israel was to be God's steady light in Old Testament times, but too often they put their light under a basket, as it says in Matthew 5.15. Too many times the blessings they received were kept inside Israel. Instead of mixing and sharing, they shut themselves away from the nations in order to escape contamination. God's next plan for world mission called for the SALT method, to go and make disciples, as it says in Matthew 28:19 Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and also in Mark 16:15 and he said to them go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and in verse 20 and they went out and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs amen 
and Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The history of Christian missions sparkles with stories of self-sacrificing missionaries who went as salt to the world, bringing the gospel of life to individuals, communities, and sometimes entire nations. However, as with ancient Israel, too often these mission successes have been obscured by the human shortcomings of the missionaries themselves and their overall mission enterprise. These human shortcomings include one, poor planning for outreach and inadequate understanding of the task, two, narrow focus on mission only as education, health care, disaster relief or development which overshadow preaching the gospel, three, underfunding and understaffing by the sending organisations, four, missionaries unsuited to the task, and five, nations that forbid the preaching of the gospel. Of course, no one ever said that it was going to be easy. We are in the midst of a great controversy, and the enemy will work every way he can to thwart our outreach efforts, whether in our own neighbourhoods or in the most remote corners of the world. We, though, mustn't be discouraged, because we have been given many wonderful promises of power, and we can be sure that God will fulfil His purposes on earth. As we have been told in Isaiah 55, verse 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Friday, September 25. The New Testament employs two Greek nouns accompanied by the adjective all to express the worldwide extent of Christian mission. All the cosmos in Matthew twenty-four thirteen, Mark 14, verse 9, and 16, verse 15, and all the okomeni in Matthew twenty-four fourteen. While cosmos, the more general term for the realm of orderly existence, signifies the planet with approximately 150 New Testament occurrences, the more specific oikomeni focuses on the world's human inhabitants. How extensive was the whole world for the first Christians? Within a few years of the crucifixion, they had reached modern-day Cyprus, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Macedonia, Greece and Italy. There is evidence that they propagated the gospel as far as southern Russia, ancient Scythia in the north, Ethiopia in the south, India in the east and Spain in the west. Did the early Christian missionaries believe they had to reach the whole world with the gospel? According to the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the Christian church, began to proclaim the mighty works of God to visitors from a list of nations, geographic regions and ethnic groups. Let's have a look at that in Acts chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. 
because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marvelled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language, in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. From its first day of life, the Christian Church has been aware of the worldwide extent of its mission. If they had that understanding back then, how much more should we today? And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. In class, go over your answer to the final question on Tuesday study about Christian claims being exclusivist and arrogant. Does exclusivism necessarily translate into arrogance? If not, why not? Question 2. The Church's understanding of the size and extent of the whole world has expanded since the day of Pentecost. Jesus' gospel commission to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations in Matthew 28.19 will remain present truth for the Church until Christ returns. How does the proclamation of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14.6-12 fit in with the Great Commission? And question 3. How would you answer this question? If people can be saved without ever hearing the gospel, what's the point of risking life and limb in order to spread it to them? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Providential Bus Encounter and it's by Kusumawathi Pereira. One morning I was riding a bus to Colombo, the capital city of Sri Lanka. I saw Francis, a long-time family friend, sitting nearby. I hadn't seen him in a long time and was surprised to learn that he had become a Seventh-day Adventist. I too had become a Christian two years earlier. I was paralyzed and unable to do anything, I told Francis. Then some Christians prayed for me and God healed me. I attended their church, but some things they do in their worship service make me uncomfortable. Jumping around, shouting and rolling on the floor and talking in strange languages. Lately, I haven't gone to church. Francis offered to bring a friend to visit me. We can study the Bible together. I'll tell you a little about the Seventh-day Adventists and what we believe, he offered. A few weeks later, Francis came with his pastor. We had a pleasant visit, and the pastor talked about God and Jesus in such simple and easy-to-understand language that I felt very close to him. Then he prayed for my family and me. His prayer was like a beautiful conversation with a friend. Francis and the pastor visited me often and shared God's truths with me. I enjoyed the Bible studies, but my husband wanted nothing to do with God. One day my husband came home drunk, when the pastor and Francis were still there. My husband often got drunk, sometimes becoming violent, breaking up the furniture and terrifying the children and me. 
When the pastor saw my husband's condition, he prayed for him. I knew that my husband would never remember ever seeing the pastor, but I was glad that the pastor was willing to pray for him. The next morning my husband was sober. He remembered almost nothing of the previous day's drinking bridge, but he remembered that the pastor had prayed for him. In some mysterious way, that prayer had touched him, and he said he was healed from drinking. I wanted to believe him, but he had promised to stop drinking before, and it never lasted. From that day on, my husband never touched alcohol again. When the pastor and Francis visited again, I told them what had happened to my husband, and we rejoiced together. When I completed Bible studies, I was baptized and became a Seventh-day Adventist. Although my husband has not yet given his life to God, I know he believes, and one day he will come to the Saviour. Kusamawathi Pereira is a farmer's wife in north-central Sri Lanka. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.